In your Bibles tonight, we're going to continue to look at Matthew chapter 5 as we've been looking at the Beatitudes of Christ. And we spent a few weeks looking at some introductory matter. We got to know the preacher, Christ himself. We got to know a little bit of the content as a whole. And last week, we started by looking at the first beatitude mentioned in verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And tonight, we look at the second, uh, they that mourn, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, verse four. There are many times in the Bible, and many verses in the Bible, rather, that don't seem to make sense when you first read them, because the teaching doesn't fit, doesn't seem to fit with what we know to be true. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 35, the Apostle Paul was preaching uh, and he said that Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, most people don't think of giving as being more blessed than receiving. Now, we talked a little bit about generosity this morning, uh, but we're usually more in favor of receiving things than we are in giving things away. But Jesus said that the opposite is true for those who really understand him and his word. When Jesus was teaching his disciples about judging others, he said this in Luke 6, verse 38, Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. I actually shared that verse in the morning service, but the idea being the same, that we're blessed more the more generous and, and considerate of others that we are. Now, how much time and effort you put into helping and serving others, Jesus said, you'll be rewarded accordingly. But when you first look at that verse, it doesn't seem to add up. If the idea being, if essentially, if I just bend over backwards and help those around me and serve them, then I will be rewarded for the effort that I put forth? Well, believe it or not, when you go about helping and serving others with the right mindset, and that's key, Jesus makes it clear that the work you do will not go unnoticed and you'll be rewarded. Now, the reward is def definitely different person to person. It's different as far as when it is even given. Sometimes the reward isn't received here, but it's received in glory. But either way, God keeps an account of everything that we've done and all things that we've done in his name specifically, and he'll reward us accordingly. But backwards teaching, certainly in the eyes of the world, work harder, be more generous, and then you'll be blessed more personally. It goes against everything, almost everything that we know to be true as far as the world standard and its measurement of how to gain success and how to have self-advancement. But God has made it clear that trust in him and obedience to everything that he commands will always be rewarded with blessings poured out upon us. Jesus stated in Matthew 10, verse 39, he said, he that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Such words will have many people in the world just scratching their heads, confused, trying to figure out the logic behind finding life by losing it. I pointed out some of these verses without fully speaking on the context of each passage, but the point I'm trying to make is that the Bible doesn't agree with the logic of man and the wisdom of this world. 
the logic of man and the wisdom of this world looks at what the Bible says and it labels Jesus as a lunatic, like someone who has no clue what he's talking about because his teachings are completely backwards and they just don't make sense. They look at much of what the Bible says and consider it a book of paradoxes. It has all sorts of sayings. The Bible has all sorts of proverbs that just don't make any sense. Now, we've been concentrating our efforts looking at what the Bible says regarding those who are blessed as we look at these Beatitudes. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus' way of being blessed, and I know we're only two verses into the Beatitudes, but what we've seen thus far is that Jesus' way of being blessed and the world's way of being blessed, these two are going in two separate directions. They just don't come together at all. We have two opposing views on what blessedness is and where and how it can be found. And the world in over 6,000 years of existence is yet to know true blessedness. In our study of the Beatitudes, we've seen so far that blessedness is not something to be found in possessions and things that we can put our hands on. As we looked at those who are poor in spirit and paralleled it to those who are even poor here in this life. As we pointed out, these Beatitudes are speaking, all of them, to believers. Therefore, blessedness, first of all, begins with those who are believing in Jesus as their Savior. What we also see is that salvation does not come with the guarantee that happiness is going to always be present in your life. Happiness and joy are completely different. Happiness is contingent upon your present circumstances. Joy is, con is contingent upon your present situation in Christ as a believer, which never changes. But happiness is going to fluctuate. It's going to be like a roller coaster. You'll have moments as a believer where you're happy. You'll have moments of, as a believer where you're incredibly upset because something happens that changes your environment, that changes your situation in an instant. And you may have been happy a moment ago, but right at this moment, you are not. And that's the way that life is going to go. But joy should be consistent in the life of the believer. You should never allow your situation to rob you of the joy that you should have as a believer in Christ because nothing that ever happens in this life can ever change the fact that you're a child of God. So that should be always a cause for joy, even in the craziest of circumstances. Wouldn't it be nice that once we're saved, we would truly be happy without ever having to Wipe the smile off our face, though. Wouldn't it be happy? Wouldn't it be a good thing to never have to go through any sort of trouble once we're saved? Now, some of you are thinking, well, that'd be great, right? But even Christians fall into moments where we are not happy, and we fall into the allure and the pursuits of the world, and we buy into the approach of the world that happiness can be found in material possessions such as houses, cars, equipment, clothes, jewelry, books, toys, games, money, even though Jesus never mentioned any of these things as adding an ounce of happiness to our lives. And we allow that to happen, and because of that, our happiness goes up and down all the time. And what we've seen so far, as stated in verse number three here in Matthew chapter five, is that the true blessings can actually be experienced without any abundance of possessions because those who are poor in spirit are the ones that he says are blessed here. They realize that the things that are offered to them here in this world are not gonna last, so they focus their sights on Jesus and the promises that he has made to them. And as we continue on to verse number four here this evening, what we also see, which is contrary to everything that the world tells us, is that those who mourn, can also be blessed. Notice again what it says here in Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. When's the last time that you put these two words together in one sentence as a positive? Blessed and mourn. Generally, these two words don't go together. 
But Jesus says here, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. One of the things that I didn't mention as part of the laundry list of things that the world tells us that we find joy in is good health. The world will tell you that joy can be found in good health and in healthy living. And Christians buy into this as well. And they'll even go so far as to say, I've heard people say this, that joy and freedom from any sort of uh, pain are inalienable rights as American Christians. Read this somewhere, so in case you're thinking I'm crazy. Christians today will suggest that if fellow believers manage themselves and their lives well enough, they have the right to live above pain so that they can experience true joy. When our kids fall and scrape their knee, I was, it's usually Ruthie that will calm them down because I'll usually say, you know, just scrape it off, you know. It doesn't hurt that bad, and she'll say, no, the leg is broken, so it's, it's serious. <laughs> Usually Ruthie will calm them down, tell them that the pain that they're experiencing will eventually go away, that it won't last. And whether we acknowledge it or not, it's usually children who believe this more than the adults, that pain won't always be there, that pain will eventually go away. Because once we reach adulthood, we realize that pain and hurt, they're always going to be with you. They're always going to be with you. Sometimes we invent new ways to have pain. We go to sleep at night feeling okay. We wake up and all of a sudden we're in pain. What were we doing in our, in our sleep that all of a sudden our, our knees ache when we wake up or our back hurts when we're awake? It doesn't make sense. We invent new ways to experience pain. We don't have to like it, but the sooner we realize it, the better off we'll be that pain is a part of life, even the Christian life. Joy in the life of the believer can be constant, and it should. But happiness is contingent upon our present circumstances. So you're going to have painful times. You're going to have sorrowful times. But you should have joy in every day of your life. It's been said that the focus of man's life is the pursuit of meaning, not the pursuit of happiness. If we expect that everything in life is going to be pleasurable, we're just asking for frustration to meet us head on. What seems to be most prevalent today is that preachers are teaching that we ought to have a positive mental attitude about everything in life, and in doing so, we'll be able to guarantee a lifetime of happiness. Whatever the circumstances may be, as long as we can have a positive philosophy of life, then we'll be okay and we'll sure to be happy at all times. The problem is that such views ignore the examples in the Bible where those who are hurting can actually be in joy as well. The world tries to tell us that as long as we have a smile on our face, then everything is going to be okay, and we'll not only fool the world into believing we're always happy, but we'll fool ourselves into believing that we're always happy and everything's good. The more you read the Bible, the more you find out that such an idea is just not true, because it'll never be found in the Bible that a smile or a glad look will melt away the hurt and guarantee lasting happiness. Instead, the Bible offers a more realistic view of life, and we have numerous examples of biblical characters who did the opposite of what the world suggests. In fact, I'll give you just a few. When Sarah died, Abraham didn't hide his emotions over the loss of his wife. The Bible tells us that he wept. We're told that David mourned the loss of his son Absalom. Jeremiah is widely known as the weeping prophet as his preaching was full of grief and sadness. And as you read even through the book of Lamentations, you can almost see the tear marks that have fallen on the pages as he was probably penning these words. 
In the New Testament, a certain woman approached Jesus, the Bible says, and proceeded to wash his feet with her tears. When Jesus' close friend Lazarus died, the shortest verse in all the Bible, which you're begging for me to have as our next memory verse, John eleven thirty five. 35, who can tell me what it says? Two words, Jesus wept. He wept. We're told later on when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane praying alone. In Luke 22, verse 44, it says, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was in agony, the Bible says. Jesus watched Peter weep bitterly over his denial of him and even comforted the weeping Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb on that glorious resurrection morning. Now, these are just a a few references to weeping and, and bitterness that we see in Scripture. And yet, somehow, we've conjured up this notion that weeping, that hurting, that grief and sorrow should have no place in life. Because of the world's view on certain matters, we've been told that weeping is now a sign of weakness. So we have to hide this at all costs. And we're to do everything we can to to hide any sort of emotion for that matter. Even in, in some Christian circles, weeping is viewed as a sign of a lack of faith. If you ever weep, it means that you don't trust Christ enough to be in control over matters. Therefore, your faith needs to be increased. Now, I won't argue that everyone's faith needs to be increased for sure. But this is just a ridiculous notion to suggest that weeping is any evidence of a lack of faith in God. And if you read the Bible, you'll find that it agrees with me. Now, I won't go through every single one of them, but there are all sorts of reasons to weep, to cry. There are tears of devotion that Mary shed at the feet of Jesus. There are tears of concern like the Apostle Paul uh, cried as he uh, preached to the Ephesians. There are tears of regret like those by the Ephesian leaders who wished that they, uh, uh, rather as they wished a farewell to Paul. There are tears of anguish, the Bible tells, tells us, that, that were shed by Jesus as he wrestled over the will of God, which was leading him to the cross, as well as tears of compassion as he looked upon the city of Jerusalem and he says he wept and mourned over the fact that they were rejecting him nationally. And finally, there are tears of sorrow that accompany death and disappointment in this life. The Bible never expects us to pretend that we are not hurting or that we will never be hurting at any point. It doesn't expect you to pretend that sorrow and grief are not real emotions or that we should hide such emotions. You cannot make truth disappear simply by wishing that to be the case. We're told in Psalm 56, verse 8, the Bible says, Thou tellest my wanderings, Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. And these verses express that our emotions are so important to God that he actually bottles our tears and he keeps them. Our emotions are special to him that he keeps them close by. And yet, with as much support that such emotions are good for us to demonstrate, it can be very hard to understand the words of Christ here in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. How is it that Christ teaches that those who are mourning, those who are hurting, can actually be blessed? Now, as we look at this verse, I'd like to point out four ways quickly how we can be blessed when we're mourning. First of all, We're blessed when we sacrifice the present for the future. We're blessed when we sacrifice the present for the future. When a Christian accepts the difficulties and the challenges of this life, he will eventually realize that they are for his greater good, that God is preparing him for a future glory. When we choose to live for the world to come, 
the world that is promised to every single child of God, and for every Christian, that is heaven. We will still see all, all different sorts of sorrow and sadness here, but there is a joy that awaits every Christian that can never be weakened, that can never be dulled by even the greatest sorrows that we'll encounter here. In Luke chapter 16 and verses 19 to 31, there's a very familiar story about the rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Now, you're all pretty familiar with the story about the rich man who had everything that money could buy and never lacking anything. And then on the outside of his gate, there was a poor man named Lazarus who had nothing. And on top of having nothing, it said he was so physically dilapidated that the dogs would literally wick, lick the wounds from his body. And he was there, a beggar, forced to live off of the crumbs that fell from the table of the rich man. And Jesus describes that both of these men die, which everyone will until the Lord returns. And Lazarus, he says, was carried by angels into a place called Abraham's bosom, and the rich man is taken to hell. And what follows is a conversation between the rich man who's in hell and Abraham, who is in this place known as Abraham's bosom. And they're talking back and forth, and Abraham discusses that there is a great gulf that is fixed between them where no one can cross, but they can ha obviously have this conversation going back and forth. And, and the man who's in hell realizes that he was wrong, realizes that he's got five brothers who are still alive, and they need to hear the truth so that they don't end up where he is. And Abraham tells him that, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have everything they need to avoid being in hell. And as they, they have this conversation and is going back and forth, the reality of it is that while one was absolutely dirt poor here on earth and the other was absolutely filthy rich here on earth, the one who was filthy rich and was lacking nothing was lacking one thing, the one thing that the poor man had, and that was faith in God. And all of the wealth and all the power and all of the, the prominence that the rich man had wasn't, go, wasn't, going any, wasn't doing him any favors as far as his eternal uh, destination was concerned. And so Abraham reminded him that while he was on earth, he had all the good things that the world could offer. Imagine that. All of the best things of this world afforded that rich man no benefit once this life was over. He had lived, the Bible says, sumptuously here on earth, never lacking anything, taking for himself everything that his heart desired at any time, but all of that meant nothing regarding his eternity. And all the wealth and possessions of earth didn't get him one step closer to being in heaven one day, and that rich man's life on earth came to an end, and he found himself in hell. And that's the trade-off that we see all too often. You can have everything that this world has to offer, and there is a lot that this world has to offer but you can have it all, many people choose, at the expense of losing their own soul. Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, he said, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Many people don't realize that they're sacrificing their eternity to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season while they're here on earth. And so Jesus says to those who are sacrificing the present for the future, here in Matthew 5, verse 4, blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are they who don't have everything. Blessed are they who understand that everything this world has to offer isn't going to last and get you one step closer to heaven. So even if you have to make sacrifices now, you are far more blessed in eternity than those who are getting everything that this world has to offer. 
We can try to take the easy road now and sacrifice the future, or we can sacrifice and discipline ourselves now so that we can experience the true joy that the future offers in Christ. So if we mourn now, the Bible says as believers in Christ, we shall be blessed for eternity. Sacrifice today will bring joy and happiness later. And this is the principle that Jesus taught, and that is why he declared, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus understood that true blessing is found when we sacrifice the present for the future. He understood that nothing here on earth could ever compare to the blessings and the glories that await every single believer. Jesus knew that all the things of the earth, even the greatest that this world could ever offer, is only going to be temporary. All of it has a shelf life, where the glories of heaven are all eternal. The mourning and the sadness and the hurt will not last forever for the believer, but will soon be turned into eternal joy and everlasting happiness. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it states, Thou will show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And then Jesus said in John 15, verse 11, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. What God desires for us is not a temporary, is not a weak joy, but a lasting and an eternal joy, which is only fully experienced in the presence of God. We are blessed when we sacrifice the present for the future. And second, we're blessed when we sympathize with those around us who suffer. We are blessed when we sympathize with those around us who suffer. Now, Jesus reserves blessings for those who feel sorrow for fellow believers that are suffering. Jesus was often described as a man who was full of compassion for others. He was constantly reaching out to heal those that were sick, to comfort those that were in pain. And what we see is that sorrow is a product of love. You are sorrowful when those you love are hurting. As we love the people that God has placed in our lives, we end up hurting when we see them hurting. Their pain is our pain. And as our love for others continues to grow, it draws others into its circle. You can't mourn for someone that you don't love. It won't just happen that those emotions and feelings are going to be felt in you for someone that you don't care about. Imagine a person who never mourns, a person who never feels an ounce of sorrow. This is a person that lives completely by himself, having lost touch with every family member, with every friend. He never visits anyone. He, in turn, is never visited by anyone. He is completely shielded from all sorrow because he never gets close to anyone. But this man is never happy. I promise you that. This man has no one to share life with. He has no one to talk to, no one to share any good times with, if there be any. He has no one with whom he can feel any sort of emotion with at all. And the Bible tells us that when we suffer, we're able to help others who suffer. This is one of the great reasons why believers are called to assemble together for church, to be there for one another, and to bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 tells us. There is a great blessing to those who can identify with someone else's pain and sorrow, especially when they've experienced the same pains that someone else presently in the church is feeling. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You see, in the midst of sorrow and hurt, God offers a brand new and a whole new entire inventory of tools for the believer to help those that are around you. And it's our responsibility to use those tools to help those around us. 
He's given us everything we need. We just have to utilize it. That means we need to be alert. That means we need to be paying attention. We need to be aware of those around us that are hurting so that we can actually be ready to put those tools to use that he has given to us. There is almost a, it's really encouraging to be able to, to talk to someone who knows exactly what you're going through. It's encouraging to hear. There's relief that comes about you when a person comes up to you and hears about what you're going through and says, you know what? I just went through something just like that. And here's how the Lord got me through this. It's encouraging to hear that someone else has been through what you've been through. Someone else has experienced what you're presently experiencing. And this is what 2 Corinthians 1 is all about. That God is the God of all comfort and he comforts us when we're in all tribulation so that we can turn around and comfort those. There is a relief that God brings. The, the word of God is the exact uh, the word of God that, rece- that gives us the counsel that we need is, can, can be used to give counsel to others that, that need it with the same issue as well. So blessed are those who can sympathize with those people that are sorrowful and hurting around them. And notice third, we're blessed when we sorrow for our sin. We're blessed when we sorrow for our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 10, the Bible says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Now, I'm not looking for anyone to answer me out loud, but when was the last time that you sorrowed over sin in your life? The general consensus of this world is to not deal with sin. In fact, the general consensus of many of the the seeker-friendly churches is to not deal with sin, but to just kind of sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not there. When a person never seeks to deal with the sin in his life, he never takes a step to getting better. Instead of dealing with our own sin, we call ourselves victims. And we end up blaming everyone and everything else around us. Our problems are not our fault, but we're, we're... we're in the situation that we're in because of our upbringing or we're just a product of our environment. So therefore, we're not guilty. We're just innocent victims. Are we molded by our environment? Absolutely. Are we influenced by it? Absolutely. But that's not to say that you're completely scot-free because of how you were brought up. You still make the decisions that you are making and you still are accountable for the decisions that you've made. But that's what the world would have you to believe. They'll have you living in this fantasy world where no one is expected to take responsibility for their actions, but that's not the reality of what the Bible teaches us. A thief won't admit his own sin. Instead, he blames it on a deprived childhood. A murderer doesn't admit his own sin. Instead, he blames it on an abusive childhood. But when a person truly confronts his sin head on and realizes that his sin violates the perfect holiness of God, he will then mourn over his own sin. And God wants us to treat sin appropriately, to be brokenhearted when we sin. Mourning over our sin is good and it's healthy for every believer. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, blessed are they that mourn. For those that mourn who recognize their sin and their consequences and the reality of it, he says, these are the ones that are going to be comforted. The man who cannot mourn over his sin can never have the true forgiveness found in Christ. The Lord doesn't forgive the sin that we never confess. But when we come to God acknowledging our sin and mourning in the fact that it was our sin, it was our personal sin for which Jesus died, God then begins the healing process in our lives. What does 1 John 1, 9 tell us? Anyone tell me what 1 John 1, 9? Amen. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But it needs to be confessed. And this is the life of the believer here. When you look at the life of the Apostle Paul, you'll find that as the years went on, he stopped referring to himself as he's writing, as the Apostle Paul. 
but instead began more referring to himself as the least of all saints, even calling himself the chief of all sinners. In a matter of a few years, in Paul's own writing, he went from being an apostle to the chief of sinners. Now, if we were to weigh these two as to what would be a more desired title, no one's going to jump to the one that's claiming to be a chief of sinner and say, well, I want that attached to my name. We're all going to want the title of apostle, wouldn't we? Because that says something more as far as your relationship and your walk with God as opposed to what the chief of sinners says. You look at that and you're thinking, well, that guy's not doing much for his life. In fact, he's doing everything that is contrary to what the word of God says. Hence the title, chief of sinners. And yet, as you look at the writing of the apostle Paul, he starts by calling himself an apostle and it almost like he ends by calling himself the chief of sinners. There's a recognition of the sin in his life and he's mourning over that sin as he struggles to get it under control. You see, the closer he got to the Lord, the more he realized the poverty of his, of his own soul. Blessed are they that mourn over their sin, for they can experience a wonderful peace and a happiness in knowing that God cares for them and offers them forgiveness. The Bible says they shall be comforted. And notice fourth, we are blessed when we suffer the losses of life. We're blessed when we suffer the losses of life. We may not care to admit it, but the reality is that sorrow is the source for some of the greatest discoveries in life. The meaning of friendship and love are often best seen in the midst of sorrow. It is in sorrow that a person finds whether his faith is real or if it's fake. It is in sorrow where a sinner first meets his Savior. The saddest thing in the world is not that a soul that is full of sorrow, but a soul that is so selfish and dull that it feels nothing. To have sorrow is to love. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you've received some horrible diagnosis. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you're dealing with relationship issues, or maybe it's something that I haven't even mentioned. Whatever that's causing you to be hurting and sorrowful, I want you to know what God says about how we should deal with that sorrow and that hurt. And first of all, we're to express our sorrow and not to keep it in. Express that sorrow. Don't keep it in. Jesus openly wept, as we said, on several occasions. He expressed feeling. And the expressing feeling is an emotional release that is beneficial for us in our heavenly journey. Express your sorrow, don't keep it in. And second, God encourages us to face our losses, not to try and replace them. The world tells us to quickly try and occupy our minds with something else, anything else. But that never does anything to take away our sorrow, does it? It only ends up maybe burying it or hiding it for a little while. The Bible encourages us to seek counsel with fellow believers and allow the Lord to help us through those times of sorrow. Express sorrow and not keep it in. Know that God encourages us to face our losses, not to, try to, not to try to replace them. And third, God encourages us to reach out to others and not to run from them. God encourages us to reach out to others and not to run from them. The world tells us to leave those that are grieving alone. Give them their space. The Bible, or not the Bible says, but people say this. Now, I'm not saying go run and get in their face. Be a nuisance. But the Bible does tell us to grieve with one another. After Jesus' death, the disciples, they all gathered together. They all gathered to 
reassess what's going on. They all gather to share their griefs with one another. It says in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 15, it says, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that weep. Sometimes you don't have to say anything. Sometimes just your presence can say everything. Reach out to others. Don't run from them. And finally, God tells us to depend on the Holy Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. There is an old adage which says that time heals all wounds. That is the biggest lie I've ever heard. The same word that Jesus used for those who are being comforted here in Matthew chapter 4 where he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That same word for comforted right there is the same word he used to speak of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, who we call the comforter. You may heal over time, but it is the Holy Spirit that is going to bring that true healing in your life. In times of hurt and sadness, know that God is at work and know that God is moving you towards experiencing true blessedness in your life. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Lord, thank you for opening your word to us here this evening. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of, Lord, knowing that even when we mourn as believers, Lord, it is an appropriate response. Lord, as we deal with pain, as we deal with sorrow, Lord, it's something that certainly we see examples of, of your son doing during his time here on earth and others. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that even in intense times of mourning, Lord, we know as believers that there is coming a day where we shall be comforted. And help us, Lord, to live in such a way that is pleasing to you and represents you the right way. Lord, help us not to be swayed by the, the wisdom of this world, but to keep our feet planted firmly on the rock that we have, who is Jesus Christ, and the word that you have given us, Lord, which is your revelation to man. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.